Hey, it's Pete Corelli here. Starting an independent developer studio or even working in one is a lifelong commitment to a creative vision with absolutely no guarantee of success. In this series by Game on Oz, we'll chat with the heroes of the industry, the ones who put it all on the line for a stranger they'll never meet to have an experience they'll never see. The highs are a proud stance atop a mountain of pixels, whilst the lows will leave you battered, bloody, bruised, and in some cases, financially ruined. Bank or bust, launch or lost, this is Indie or Die. Listen to the Game on Australia podcast. It's Pete here. I have the uh, astute pleasure of being joined by a couple of very incredible people. They are the co-founder and creative director of Transolar Games, Corey and Laurie Cole. Um, thank you so much for being on the Game on Australia podcast. Well, we're really happy to be here. Yeah, delighted. Uh, we got you guys on here as a, as a great opportunity to chat to you because um, one of our creative guys in particular, uh, we call him the historian because uh, he's a real MMORPG fiend as well as everything else that he gets stuck into as well. Loves a good indie game too. Just recently got stuck into Hero U Rogue to Redemption, uh, scored it a 9 out of 10, also seen that 90% across Steam as well. Congratulations on such a well-received game. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thanks. We uh, we just wish uh, more people knew about it. <laughs> well, that's the idea here, and that's what Game in Australia yeah, is here for. that'll uh, start to happen. Exactly right. Okay, I want to go like way back, uh, if we can, because we've got we've got a lot of time. So let's take our time with this. Um, this, as far as I've come across in my information and research, based on School for Heroes, which is an email-based web game, can we go all the way back to the beginning, School for Heroes, and can you tell me a little bit about what is an email-based web game? Oh, we can go back further than we that. We go back a lot further than that. Let's, uh, let's go back a, further. Let's go start. back to the beginning. I mean, I because there are so many things here, that, like the fact that, I mean, I'm talking to a married couple who run a, a, a development company, which in itself is just so awesome. Actually, can we go back to how you two met? Oh, we could. Oh <laughs> uh, well, we we could go back farther than yeah. that. Let's see, way back in the 1970s, two guys, uh, Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson, uh, gaming uh, nerds, uh, <laughs> got together and created a game called Dungeons and Dragons. And Lori and I each uh, discovered that game independently. Uh, I oddly uh, first discovered this paper game on a computer. Uh, I was using the Plato uh, Computer Assistant Instruction System out of the University of Illinois, uh, and uh, uh, several people independently came up with games uh, with names like DND and Dungeon uh, and others uh, that were uh, computer versions of Dungeons and Dragons. And I had no idea at this point that they were based on a paper game, but uh, you know, I uh, I was told uh, you got to try these out, and uh, it was a really fun uh, little dungeon crawl, Lori. Um, I discovered it because I went to a world science fiction convention and my brother went there as well. And I went and did all the, you know, going to panels and things like that. And my brother found the game room and in the game room, they were playing a version of Dungeon and Dragons. And he spent the entire convention down in the game room, never saw anything else. And when he came back from the convention, he said, you won't believe what I discovered. And he taught me how to play D&D. And that was how I got into it. That's awesome. So yeah, meanwhile, uh, I was at that very same uh, World Science Fiction Convention in Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah. Uh, but I, I don't think I met. Uh, my theory is I think I saw Lori in the lobby and uh, <laughs> talked to her briefly, but I was, you know, kind of shy. Uh, and, and she had a boyfriend at the time. Oh uh, wow! Yeah. Uh, but we actually met a year later at a different science fiction convention, Westercon, in uh, San Francisco. So all these different threads kind of all crossed into each other, uh, and uh, we met because by then. Uh, I had discovered the paper version of uh, Dungeons and Dragons uh, in Chicago, Illinois. Now I have to, you know, make this clear that uh, uh, this is like talking about 
uh, Melbourne and Perth and uh, maybe uh, Auckland, New Zealand, uh, <laughs> yeah. in terms of uh, where these cities are. So we're in we're in three widely. And I was living in Los Angeles. I was living in a, a fourth city. So we're in uh, uh, multiple different cities, thousands of miles apart, uh, uh, tying together these little threads uh, that led to uh, uh, my creating a. Uh, I got together. I learned how to play Dungeons and Dragons. I uh, and uh, I was just a player, but then they, uh, I, I got this idea uh, for a scenario I could run and said, okay, uh, I'll make my own uh, Dungeons and Dragons scenario called uh, the Tower of Indomitable Circumstance. And it was all about <laughs> okay. inventing my own religion and stuff like that. Uh, and uh, and then, you know, the, the players liked it a lot. And uh, the following year, I tried to get it published. Uh, and eventually, I, you know, I finally uh, you know, got a publisher that wanted to do it. Uh, and so I show up this uh, the science fiction convention with my uh, my module waving around in my hand, and I'm sitting at a table, and this uh, really cute young lady walks in, <laughs> looking for a game. Well, I wasn't looking for a game. I was just looking around and hear this guy out of nowhere says, "Come, come and play. Come and see what I've got here." And then spent forever telling me about what the game was and everything else of his life and you know for well, hours that came, and hours. That came a little later, but, but that's how we met. Basically, in a science fiction convention around a game, and that's been the story of our life. And just as I'm doing here, I talk an awful lot, and uh, Lori uh, really has to uh, work to get a word in edgewise or anyone else. That is extraordinary, and I'm really looking forward to delving down the track into the dynamic of you two working together. Because um, I mean, look, I I uh, I come from a um, history of family business. You know, I've I've seen my parents over the last thirty years running fresh seafood businesses here. And they ran them together. They work together. They have their fair share of uh, blow-ups and all that sort of stuff. And it's so it is a really interesting dynamic. But I want to go back to a science fiction convention back in the 1970s. How different was it? Uh, was it going to a science fiction convention? And in terms of you know the overall layout of one and what was there versus what you might experience at a, at a pop culture convention in today's day and age. Hmm. I don't think it's all that different. There wasn't as many people wearing costumes at that, and it was more you went to the talks to listen to people, but they still had a wonderful art shows. You could talk to real artists. You could watch the uh, the costume parties and things like that. They always had a big masquerade slash uh, uh, show yeah, up. Yeah, costume uh, competition. Uh, uh, yes. So so in fact, this particular convention, uh, Westercon 1979, San Francisco, uh, uh, was the only science fiction convention uh, that I ever went to before or after that, that I actually made an attempt to enter the masquerade contest. And I had uh, a costume that I had gotten a friend to uh, craft for me based on my instructions, yeah. uh, which is a big pair of silvery wings and a black uh, Balrog costume. Amazing. Uh, so wow. So I came dressed as a Balrog, and Laurie was a uh, Lord of the Rings. Uh, we were both Tolkien fans. Yep. Uh, so we had a lot in common. Yep. And Lori helped me, uh, you know, with the makeup and stuff because she had a theater background. Yes. So he was a programmer who uh, left programming so he could become a, a game designer for a year. <laughs> and I was a teacher way off in the Indian Reservation, you know. But we kept in contact by writing letters for a while. Yeah, my story is uh, that, uh, you know, at like age 25, I decided I was going to retire a millionaire by age 30. <laughs> Don't we uh, all? <laughs> and, and, uh, that was, and that was so I could play games full time. Yep. Uh, and uh, I, I like to say I made it two thirds of the way there. I eventually did turn 30 uh, and I quit my job, which I guess means I retired. I kind of forgot the millionaire part. That was the one third I didn't get right. Do you think? Uh, so, uh, so six months or a year later, when I ran out of money, I went back to work. Yeah, right. <laughs> but do you think it was a like a lot of people? You know, they they have this thing that dawns on them. They quit their jobs and and go, look, I'm going to give this a try. Um, I mean, for us in the gaming industry, I think because it it because it's derived from such a passion, um, and something that we genuinely enjoy. I I don't think that that next step is all that hard. It, it's a, it's a big step depending on where you are in your sort of life cycle. If you've got a family or maybe you've got kids who are dependent on you, maybe you've got a mortgage, all that sort of stuff. Did you find it hard making that decision to quit your job and just get stuck in? I think it would be a hundred times harder today than it was in, uh, uh, 1978, uh, when I did it, uh, or actually it was, I guess it was like 80 by then. Yes. 80. Uh, 
uh, it would be 100 times harder today. And that's because, uh, you know, at that point, uh, just uh, getting out of college, my first job out of college, I had a 50% pay raise. Uh, and I was making the uh, munificent amount of $18,000 a year. Wow. Uh, which, which at the time was a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, but, but today, uh, you know, uh, but the thing is the difference between my boss was probably making 30000 a year. Right. Okay. okay. So the boss was maybe making uh, twice what the programmers were making. Uh, and uh, today, you know, it's like 10 times, 100 times to one. Uh, and the amount that you're making in, uh, you know, any sort of an ordinary middle-class job, uh, you don't have enough backup. You don't have enough savings to be able to quit because, uh, you know, certainly I think both in, uh, Australia, but certainly in the United States, uh, rents are sky high in the U S so uh, you have to pay for your own healthcare if you're not working mm. because employers pay for healthcare. Uh, so costs are sky high here. It'd be really hard to, uh, I uh, quit my job and do it today. But you also have to be a risk taker. And Corey is a risk taker. I mean, we were, uh, uh, flash forward a few years, we had been trying to get into the game industry because we both loved games. He was working as a programmer. We had a kid. We uh, um, were, he quit his job again and we started to become independent pro he was an independent programmer we were creating a a uh, software project for the brand new atari st uh to make a real word press processor at the time yeah we we're making a, a desktop publishing system when uh, you were first starting to hear that term uh, and it was going to be for this brand new computer the atari st um uh, and uh you know i had a background i had worked on uh you know a word processor project and a uh professional uh, publishing system project prior to that. So I had some background in that. Mm -hmm. So we weren't actually in games at that point, um, but you know, we went indie uh, and uh, it was, it was a big risk. It was a very difficult project to be doing with, uh, you know, basically me as the programmer and I had uh, one other contract programmer, uh, but where these all, these threads seem to be all random. Uh, and that I think is the point of the whole exercise is that, uh, kind of everything that's happened to us has been a mixture of randomness and luck, uh, and then uh, what and we connections and connections, mm. uh, but also uh, what we call jumping for the brass ring. Uh, and back in the uh, 1920s and 30s, uh, when they had the uh, they used to have carousel rides, uh, like in uh, New York City and other places, uh, and uh, what they had for the uh, uh, a, a pole that extended out over the uh, edge of the, of the carousel uh, where you were riding in these, uh, you know, painted horses. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they had a pole that had some brass rings uh, on it. Uh, and the idea was if you were brave enough, you could stand up on your horse. I mean, this would be horrifying today. People, you know, safety authorities. <laughs> would, so. It wouldn't happen uh, today. Yeah. Would try to grab the brass ring as they went by it without falling off their horse and falling off the carousel, uh, and uh, you know that was the uh, you know the 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 metaphor for risk taking, grabbing the brass ring. I don't know if you have that there. No, uh, I, look, I've never heard of grabbing the brass ring. I mean, we we have various metaphors, but um, now that that's been explained to me, I I love that. It makes perfect sense. Okay, so here coming into uh, the uh, uh, the twentieth and then the twenty first century. Uh, basically, at some point, you just have to decide, I'm going to do it. Uh, so uh, what happened is, you know, we we're doing this this project, this desktop publishing thing. And then a friend of ours, who, again, we had met through science fiction fandom and conventions uh, and folk singing, which is science fiction uh, fantasy and fantasy folk singing, uh, named Carly Hawksdaughter, was a contractor who did animation for Sierra Online. And she called me up one night and said, uh, uh, hey, Corey, I know that you and Lori are uh, really into uh, Dungeons and Dragons, and I've been doing this work for Ken Williams at uh, Sierra Online, and uh, Ken wants to make a role-playing game, and he doesn't have anyone who can do it. So they're looking for, you know, experienced uh, tournament-level, uh, you know, prize-winning, uh, uh, you know, a few other buzzwords, role-playing uh, game designer. And I said, well, that phrase doesn't make any sense, but I've done all those things. I've I've entered a, uh, a tournament and I win it and I won it. Uh, and my wife and I are dungeon masters. So basically, uh, we contacted Ken Williams and said, you know, here, we, we'd love to design a game for you. And Ken said, well, 
okay, you know, by now he's cooled off a little from that meeting and says, well, I've got, you know, everybody in house uh, that's already working here. They all want to be game designers too. All the programmers, all the artists want to design games. You know, why should I pick you? I said, well, first of all, you know, I've got this long experience with Dungeons and Dragons. I have a published scenario, uh, this Tower of Indomitable Circumstance. Uh, and, uh, uh, and oh, by the way, I'm a, a programmer, so I know how to communicate with the programming staff. Uh, I've been programming for years, and uh, my latest project is this, uh, you know, desktop publishing system, Atari ST. And at that point, all of a sudden, the conversation changed. So mm. it's like, and, you know, you're talking to this guy, it's like, yeah, 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 heard it all before. And now he says, Atari ST, yeah. tell me more. Uh, and it turns out that Sierra had signed a contract to convert all their games, the Atari ST, and they had exactly one person in-house who knew anything about it, and he was the busiest man in the company, uh, Bob Heitman, who was in, in charge of all the programming. They needed an Atari ST programmer. Uh, so they only kind of sort of needed a, a role-playing game designer, but they really needed an Atari ST uh, programmer. So that's why I say this is, you know, all these little pieces of random luck, you know, Carly happening to have played in a game with us at a convention and met us through singing, uh, tells us about this meeting that she was in because uh, uh, she lived in the Bay Area, but she traveled, you know, she would, grew up in the area near Sierra Online in Central California, uh, uh, near Yosemite Park, and uh, uh, says, uh, you know, you guys, why don't you guys talk to Ken? And then Ken needed the particular thing that I had just been doing for the last three years. It's, you so know, he was hired as a programmer. I'm and not... I had to come in and, and uh, basically pitch a role-playing game. Because you mentioned luck, right? And I think this is a really important educational moment for people who listen to this podcast. Because we have a lot of people who listen to this podcast that are um, indie developers that are just starting out. We have a lot that are, uh, you know, in the startup community, in um, tech and gaming. We have a lot that are, you know, fledgling Twitch streamers and gamers that want to go pro and make a lot of money. They want to be the next ninja, like all that sort of stuff. And I... You know, you do hear a lot about luck and chance, but I, I think it's really important to acknowledge that, yeah, sure, like those those opportunities may be a little bit like luck, but I mean, you guys for years had been putting the hard yards in and it just so happened that you actually had the experience when those opportunities came up. Precisely. And we have the connections. That's the other thing that you really need to be a success. You have to get out and meet people and, and have these people to help you pull your, your forward mm. because it's who you know. And it isn't, you know, that whole, uh, you know, who you know is going to help you. It's that you don't know who's going to help you. It's not know where the connections are going to be made. But all of these connections help make you, you know, help get you where you need to go. And the and the third corner of the triangle is that grabbing for the brass ring. Yeah. Uh, because when that opportunity arrives, you have to say, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to take the risk. Uh, I'm going to make the jump. I'm going to, you know, drop everything. And, you know, we had we owned a home in uh, San Jose, which is near San Francisco. And, uh, you know, it's the hotbed of, uh, you know, the tech uh, development. Uh, and, you know, I had a choice of I could have uh, ended up going to work for uh, Google, which uh, was still 15 years or 20 years in the future, uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, becoming a tech billionaire uh, or starting my own company, or I could uh, drop everything, uh, sell our house in San Jose, which uh, turns out that if we waited five more years, would have tripled the price, yeah, wow. uh, and, you know, move out to the mountains uh, and uh, work for this company where I almost got fired a month after I started. And take a pay cut to do so. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. One third pay cut. They, they offered me a 40 percent off initially. We we bargained them all the way up, up to almost, only a third off. Uh, and, you know, all these things. So so the luck is what you make it. Uh, but what you have to do is just constantly uh, be opening these channels of communication, meeting people, uh, trying things, going to uh, conferences uh, and, uh, you know, learning new things. Uh, Lori's taught herself uh, Photoshop and probably spent, you know, several years, uh, maybe five years or more before she really got good at Photoshop enough to be able to do, uh, uh, you know, promotional stuff for our games and touch up artwork and stuff. And you just never know what, what those things are. So always be learning uh, always be meeting folks, putting yourself out there. Uh, and, you know, anyone with any degree of sense would say it's impossible to do all this, you know. 
there's there's just too much. You know, I'm working at a job, raising a family, and so on. How do you, how do you learn all these things, mm. meet all these people? And the answer is, uh, I don't know how you do it. It's impossible, but you do it anyway. Yeah, yeah. I'm there at the moment. I'm I'm in amongst all this stuff. We we've, we've started Game on Australia. We've been working on it for three years, and I've got uh, two young daughters and a wife and a mortgage and all that sort of stuff. And um, <laughs> it's it's long days, and it's uh, trying to balance everything with a full time job and bring some sort of income in whilst staying up until one two o'clock in the morning working on the other side of it. But you just you just do. I was just saying, yes, that's exactly it. Life is not easy. Yeah. But, you know, if you follow your passion, you have to expect to really put in the work to make that profit, you know, to make that practical. Yeah, and I, I've kind of told this story other places uh, online. You, you just don't get the emotional tone of it uh, that people have said, oh, yeah, yeah, poor, uh, you know, poor entitled game developers, you know, <laughs> who've made best-selling games. Oh, you had to work 60-hour uh, weeks, you know. Guess what? You know, I work at, you know, a factory job or something like that. And they make us work 60-hour weeks. Uh, and it's true. You know, people work hard and a lot of times do not get the respect they deserve. Uh, and it's not, you know, this is not a matter of, uh, you know, telling a hard luck story because you, you don't work 60-hour weeks because people force you to. Mm. You work it because you love the work, because you're excited about it. You want to get the thing right. Uh, and so it's not a hard luck story, It's a, uh, but it's a commitment story. Um, we're, we're making our way towards, uh, you know, um, a hero, you, Rogue to Redemption. Um, I want to touch on a, a few other things like Quest for Glory. I, I still want to know more about School for Heroes and, and where that is along the timeline. But while we're sitting on this at the moment, um, is it the technology was worse, but um, maybe the times were easier because the pool was smaller. Was it easier to get a game up and running as a developer back then? Or do you think it's easier now? Because even though the pool is bigger, the technology that's supporting it is a lot better. Depends who and where you are. Uh, because we came into Sierra Online uh, at a point where they had just they were just transitioning from their uh, uh, their first AGI engine, which was kind of primitive for four-color graphics and stuff like that, uh, up to SCI, which handled 16 colors, uh, and eventually 256. Uh, and uh, uh, they had, uh, you know, their language and engine that made it real easy to prototype games. You could uh, put together, uh, you know, and test a game and, you know, draw a background picture uh, on the screen, animate characters, uh, and prototype and test very, very quickly. Uh, but if you were a startup at the same time, if you were working out of your home, it was much harder than today. Yeah, you had to do everything from scratch. Everything had to be developed. How to put the pics, how to move that little dot on the screen to make it actually move. All had to be done from scratch because there were no other programs out there. You were inventing it from scratch. Yeah. And uh, strangely enough, that was my first job at Sierra before we even made the first game uh, was to uh, convert uh, SCI to the Atari ST. And the first job that uh, Bob Heitman gave me is he said, move a pixel, put a pixel on the screen uh, and get it to move. And if you can do that, everything else will come along. Uh, and and that was, was that the case? It, did you, you got it on there, you made it move and did everything else come along or is it a little bit harder uh, that, than that? That is true. It was a solid two to three months to get that pixel to, on the screen to move. <laughs> Unreal. Uh, wow. Two to then, three months to get a pixel to move on screen. Yes, because what I was doing is I was really taking this uh, interpretive uh, language and, and runtime system uh, that was uh, uh, two-thirds in C, uh, but one-third in uh, uh, 8086 assembly language and rewriting it all on yellow uh, legal pads uh, by hand, mm. and then typing all this stuff in to a very primitive assembler uh, uh, and getting into the computer and getting all of that entire system to work in order to draw that one pixel. Uh, but once I did that and I had solved all the technical problems of converting uh, between languages and everything else, uh, and then it was just a matter of, you know, getting the rest of the code to run, getting the sound system to run, uh, and so on. There were a lot of technical problems. We, you know, don't need to go into the details. But And meanwhile, you know, they wanted this game, and what they wanted was an Ultima uh, clone, a little tiny, you know, draw, uh, drop, you know, straight down map and things moving across the screen that would beat up monsters. That was their idea of what a role-playing game should be, but that wasn't our idea. 
What we came to, to Sierra to really make was something that was like a real D&D game with real drama and story and character development. And uh, we took a look at what they were doing with their games, and they were doing this uh, the adventure game. Sierra Online was really all about adventure games with a, uh, you know, you had a stage setting with a, a room and you had a character moving around it and you could click on objects in the room. And that was the way they played the game. And so we turned that into, we told them that you don't want an Ultima game. You want something that make, takes advantage of the engine they have. And of course, they love to hear that because you know, uh, the, you know, obviously they liked what they were doing and had worked very hard on it. And hearing that, you know what, you have the core of a role-playing game right there. When you're talking tabletop role-playing, uh, you know, you're talking about uh, combat and uh, you know, character stats and so on. But you're really talking about a story. Yeah. Uh, uh, so uh, this is where all that experience in moving a pixel and uh, getting the sound to work and so on. Uh, is that uh, by the time I finished that project of getting everything in the Atari ST, and my first project was converting their game uh, King's Quest IV, um, Perils of Rosella, uh, to the Atari ST, uh, is that I knew every command of the language, how it all interacted, what you could do with it, what you couldn't do, and how to extend it. Uh, so we took that and uh, turned it into an engine that would do both, uh, uh, you know, and once again, it's like, okay, yeah, I took their uh, their adventure game engine, turned it into adventure role playing hybrid engine. Yeah, hand wave. Uh, that of course was another <laughs> another three to six months of development. Yeah. Yes, yep. we basically had to uh, uh, bring in what to us was the RPG part of the game, which was character development, such that uh, in our system uh, we wanted the character to continually get better and progress, depending upon what the player actions were. So therefore, we had a system there that uh, practice makes perfect. You, the more you will throw a rock, the better your throwing skill would become. And because your throwing skill was getting better, your agility and your other your your fitness would get better as you did it. So we had this whole system underneath of how the game should play, and it had a strong story. It was all about you know interacting and and learning and growing for this one little character as he goes through this place. So we called that game uh, Heroes Quest. So you want to be a hero, and that was uh, you know kind of a sardonic title. The idea is uh, being a hero really isn't all it was made out to be. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, I've always uh, loved uh, you know making. Well, I I don't love it. I just do it. Uh, when I'm in a conversation, I'm always uh, twisting words and so on. And making uh, puns. And making and... puns. Uh, <laughs> Man off the mind, But this was going to be a serious role-playing game we were doing until uh, our uh, pr programmer, Bob Fishbach, got in it. Uh, and he uh, he was an experienced one. He had worked on uh, Police Quest and some other games. Uh, and he did our prototype for our first couple scenes of the game. Uh, and... Lori had specified, you know, what the pictures were going to look like and, you know, the town gate and so on. And we're in a forest. Okay, well, that meant there were trees. Uh, it had not occurred to us that, oh, the player might want to click on one of those trees and, and interact with it. Uh, Bob said, well, the player's going to do that. So uh, he programmed in look at tree. Mm. Uh, and look at tree needed a message. We hadn't specified it. So he wrote a silly pun like... Uh, uh, Just leave me yeah, alone. Yeah, or, <laughs> Things uh, like that. Or I may be going out on a limb here, but uh, yeah, um, uh, you twig to the inner secrets, you know, etc. Uh, there's there's thousands of tree puns you can make, or at least at least a dozen major ones. But this this is um this is a real extraordinary part of this whole development process when it comes to a game because you almost have to. Um, be two steps ahead as a developer of the people who are eventually going to be your end user, don't you? Like you have to be going back and reviewing every little part to go, you know what, that tree there, there's probably a good chance that they're going to click on that tree or what's mm -hmm. going to happen when they go anywhere near that rock? Like, can we make that rock do something or actually say something? Does it become a part of the game? And then all of a sudden these tendrils just branch out along the game. Like it, it, it just... It is extraordinary, and I don't think it's given enough um, 
particularly in today's day and age, the way a lot of games tend to be received and and talked about online um, quite negatively. I, I don't think that side of it is actually given enough thought by the end user into the actual amount of work um, that goes into putting together a game. Oh, it is it is absolutely immense. Yeah, for one thing, you know, it's not like writing a book. You know, authors of books will tell you, you know, the characters start to take a, a life of their own and, and help write the book. But in our case, we have to think not only about how the character will behave or how what the character's personality is, but what the player wants that character's personality to be. Because we want the player to become part of the game, to feel invested in the game, and to feel like that's his own avatar in the game. Mm. So therefore, you have to make sure that you're allowing the player to do things that are stupid or or, or may not be the right thing you want as the game designer for them to do, but the player might want to. Yeah. So you've got to accommodate that, and you have to be aware that you're not just telling this one linear straight story. The player is inventing it as he goes along, as he's touching other pieces and doing things. That creates the story. And, of course, the player doesn't exist. <laughs> uh, there are uh, tens or hundreds of thousands of players uh, that uh, each one is coming at this game from a different thing and interpreting it differently and getting something different out of it and trying to do somewhat different things. So we don't make things easy on ourselves either. <laughs> because what we wanted to do is to bring in the role-playing type of thing. We let you pick the kind of character you wanted to play, whether it was a fighter, a magic user, or a thief. And because we let you become one of those characters, we had to let that character's skills change how you proceed, how you handle problems in the game. Yeah, they have to matter. Yeah, so yeah. that the skills actually are important. So, for instance, the simple puzzle, there's something shiny up in the tree in a nest. And how do you get that nest down to get that shiny thing? Well, if you're a fighter, maybe you throw a rock. Or if you're a thief, maybe you climb up and get it. And maybe if you're a magic user, you actually cast a spell to get it. Um, but... You know, we're starting out at the beginning of the game. You don't have the skills to do that. So you have to practice your skills to try to get that accomplished. That is um, a, a fascinating point that leads me to another question, because I have played games where the the progression feels out of sync with the story. So it, it's like it's like they, you know, they've developed this great character. This great story is supporting the character you're playing. But the way that you actually progress as a character through the game just kind of feels a little bit off pace. How do you as a developer get that balance right? Well, in effect, we try. We, we try. <laughs> we do it. But what we try to do is uh, we need to keep the balance between what the skills the player will have at this point in time in the game to the challenge that they're going to face. Yeah, one of the things, uh, you know, role-playing games, kind of a trope to have uh, monsters in combat. Uh, and uh, first of all, we wanted everything to make internal sense in the game. So we would never, you know, the, uh, uh, certain other games I won't name, uh, like uh, King's Quest, which was Sierra's uh, most uh, famous one, uh, would have, you know, a snake uh, somewhere that, you know, just really had no real purpose in the game it was an obstacle that you had to get by uh, or the original adventure uh, had a, uh, you know, dragon in this cavern uh, just in the middle of nowhere. And uh, in fact, it had a snake too, mm -hmm. but it'd have to be snakes. Yeah. Uh, uh, so uh, you can't just have that random stuff. Everything has to have a reason to be there. Uh, so what we did is, uh, you know, basically said, okay, here's our setting. Uh, we said, we've got a, uh, you know, a town in Germany. We came up with some backstory that only we knew, uh, about things that were going on there. We had a little bit that we told the player uh, that, uh, you know, the past of the town, you you just barely made it in before the past got snowed in, so you're trapped here in this valley until uh, until spring. Uh, and uh, then we have various things that <coughs> uh, we know why things are going wrong here and why there are monsters here, uh, but there are all obstacles you need to get by. So then your question is game balance, and how do you make that make sense with the progression making sense with the story? What we did for Hero's Quest is we drew a, a set of concentric rings around the town 
And the farther you, out you went from town, the more dangerous it was. We put the tougher monsters out there and the uh, harder uh, challenges. Right. Um, and then near the town, we had more, uh, you know, townspeople and uh, uh, minor opponents uh, that you could fight, hopefully a little more easily and build up your skills so you would be ready for the harder ones. Uh, I'm not sure if we 100% succeeded in that, but uh, I actually went back and played that game a few months ago and said, boy, this combat is really, really hard. <laughs> Harder than we ever ever realized. What, what was it? Were there, were there other things that you came across during like playing that game that you thought that you, you might have done differently now that you've got all this other experience banked over the years? Uh, you know, it actually surprisingly still works uh, today, 30 years later. Uh, we started those games, uh, started the first game in 1988 and it shipped in 1989. Uh, so, uh, and we uh, still have players yeah. that play them and they play them every, every year. year that come back and say, Oh yeah, I got my annual. Yeah. You know, I played this because what we didn't do, what we did do was not just create one game. We created a whole series of games mm. for that one character you were playing to progress through a whole series of stories to come to the final conclusion in the end, which was game number five. I also want to do a touch on something Laurie said about, uh, you know, character, you know, in a book, characters taking over the book and telling the author uh, what, what they should write. Uh, well, obviously we have that to some extent because, uh, you know, given the setting, you say what characters belong there, what do they want, yada, yada. Uh, but we also had uh, the other kind of characters telling us what they want, which was our team members. Yep. Uh, games, uh, you know, games, no matter, you know, you talk about the game designers and we were the game designers in these, but it's the team that makes a game. Uh, and uh, really the entire tone of Heroes Quest came about because Bob Fishbach prototyped it and wrote some really silly messages to start up the game. And I said, ooh, puns, I love puns. And we had an artist originally that was very cartoony style. And so what was supposed to be a serious, dramatic story, because it had a cartoon-like character and cartoon-like things it was interacting, suddenly the tone has to change. It has to match what you're seeing there mm. because you want to keep the whole thing, a consistent world and a consistent worldview. And so suddenly we had to, you know, accommodate this sense of humor. And really we did. Um, we integrated it. We made characters that were just plain humorous to work with. Even silly. Even <laughs> silly. And because of that, it feels like it's a cohesive whole. Yeah. There's yeah. synergy in a team, the, uh, a good team. Yeah, the other thing was uh, I had played some of those early text adventure games. They're terribly mm -hmm. frustrating because you're always typing stuff that the game says, uh, huh? Or it's simply, uh, I don't know the word blank, you know, uh, you know, or, uh, you know, I don't understand what you're trying to say. And you, you just get really get frustrated with that. So we resolved that we were going to make it as little frustrating as possible. And one of the ways we did that was uh, by making the game a little bit silly uh, because you don't get mad at the game as much uh, when you're laughing with it rather than, uh, you know, yelling at it. Uh, the, uh, but, you know, but also what we did is we said, okay, if you type control L, uh, that'll help you out. That'll type in your type in bar, your uh, text entry bar for you, the words look at. Uh, and, uh, so that made it really easy to type look at, uh, uh, control A, ask about. Uh, and that meant that players were much more li likely to use those uh, shortcut uh, commands rather than typing in a whole sentence. And we were, uh, we were cheating a little there because we made sure that the game understood almost anything you could say that started with look at. Mm. Uh, and mm -hmm. almost anything you could say and characters you know, understood a lot of different things that started out ask about. Uh, and so that was how you had your conversations. And I think that was one of the major difference uh, in ours between uh, pure adventure games before that is we made conversation a really important thing in the games. The characters matter uh, and you can talk to them and ask them about a lot of stuff. Occasionally you can tell them about something, but mostly you're asking questions and they're, you know, helping you understand the game world. So, it's like this uh, tapestry that you're just getting a little glimpse of. And as you play through the game, uh, you know, it unrolls and you get to see more and more of it. Uh, and and it's like, like 
reading a murder mystery, except mm. that you're the detective. You're trying to figure out what's going on in this valley. Who's the real villain here? You know, uh, where are the missing children? These are things you try to solve in the course of it and discover new things that you didn't expect. Uh, so based on the experience I've had with 30 years of game development, uh, I would say this game, uh, if you pro proposed it to me today, I would say, okay, that's a five-year development project. Right. Uh, we had one year. We had one year to do it. Wow. Uh, so we started in. Uh, uh, we started. Uh, pr we proposed it in July or August of uh, 1988. Uh, Lori started, uh, you know, sketching out some design notes and so on. Learning how they didn't work. <laughs> learning what couldn't be done. Yeah. Can't have centaurs in the game. Okay, no yep. centaurs. No, no. Cross that out. Can't have male and female characters in the game. Okay, cross that out. Why? Why? Learn. Why is that? Was that? Was it directives coming from um, the people that you that were working above you? Like, was it purely um, technical? Purely yeah, technical. Purely practical. Yeah. So you got to roll your roll your mind back to. Uh, uh, I now have uh, uh, a. a two terabyte uh, hard drive on my computer. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, back then a hard drive, uh, I had the Atari ST that had uh, uh, the basic hard drive for the Atari ST was five megabytes, uh, not even gigabytes. Uh, and the big hard drive was 20 megabytes. Uh, but most of our players didn't have hard drives at all. They had floppy disk drives and they were actually playing the games from floppy disks uh, and at this point, you could get an IBM PC uh, five and a quarter inch floppy disk held 360K, 360,000 bytes of data, uh, in which you're putting all the text, all the graphics, all the music and sound, uh, the, the program code, uh, uh, all had to fit on floppy disks. And a lot of games actually fit on one floppy disk, but uh, most of the Sierra games took about four floppy disks and you had to swap. Well, by the time we were done with this game, I believe it was nine floppy disks. Uh, and a lot of players were not loading this onto a hard drive. They were actually uh, changing floppy disks constantly during the gameplay. Yeah. Uh, so you had no memory. Now, you take your main character. Your main character is everywhere in the game. So it's on uh, the animation of, say, the character walking, picking things up, reaching out to opening a door, all those things are on every single one of those floppy disks. Uh, you get enough animation for the main character uh, in there and your entire disc is full and there's no game left uh, and, uh, and, and every single disc. Uh, so uh, if you have male and female characters, you are doubling all that animation. So, yes, we had some reality checks right away of what we weren't, you know, and had to really redesign the game to fit the limitations of the system. But it was all about, you know, adapting to what was the situation at the time. And, and we make that all sound, you know, terrible, how weak things were. But uh, the story that I told many times back then is we entered the computer game industry at the perfect time because uh, computers had just gotten powerful enough that we really could tell stories on them, uh, that we could do actual animation of characters. Uh, we could make them somewhat expressive. Uh, we had music that if you got... Uh, you know, at least a sound blaster and preferably something like the Adlib or Roland MT32. You could have really nice uh, music coming out of those speakers. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, a few years later, we had uh, talkies that characters could actually uh, talk and thing. Um, but uh, prior to that, uh, one of the early uh, role-playing games was uh, Temple of Apshai, uh, and that came with a book. Uh, and basically the game all fit in a floppy, uh, and when you entered a new scene, uh, it said 37. And you open up the book to paragraph 37, yeah. and that had the text that described what you saw because they couldn't fit that on the disc. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's, that is extraordinary. And I, you know, so compared to that, we had heaven. We, um, we, uh, this conversation goes on a fair bit in the game on Australia community because, especially among our content creators, because I'm, I'm a 34 year old gamer. Um, we've got content creators who are, you know, hitting their forties. And, um, a lot of us played like our first, um, iteration into gaming was these, you know, was, was the, the three and a half inch floppy disc was the, the chopping and changing. And I, and it's kind of something where, um, you know, we look at 
how the community receives games these days and, and talks about things like on, on Reddit, for example, like how Anthem is getting destroyed at the moment because it has um, long yeah. loading times. And, and we think to ourselves, you know, going back then, like that, it's nothing compared to what yeah. what we went through when we were first starting out playing games, let alone what the developers had to deal with. But there was another side to it as well. When you saw that you had multiple things that you had to chop and change, right? Like I, I remember um, buying Final Fantasy VII for the first time and there were four discs. I looked at it and I was overjoyed because I saw four discs and I went... Oh my goodness, there are, there are four discs of content and storyline here that I'm going to be able to play through. Like, that's that's where we came from. So to see that was, well, back in those days, it, it was amazing because you knew you were getting your money's worth. Yeah, and you were getting your play value out of out of what you've done. Yeah. And so our latest game, Hero You Rogue to Redemption, is uh, compressed. Uh, I think it's a giga, uh, gigabyte or so. It's uh, It's like a three or four gigabyte game. Uh, and you know, <laughs> we couldn't do that then. <laughs> yeah. So is is Hero uh, U Rogue to Redemption the game that you would have made back then if the technology was available? It, it's the game we made now, based off of all we learned then. Yeah. And all that we have played since then, because you know, you really put into a game what you know and all the things you've learned. Um, we had a game, um, the, the second game in our series, we had this series of disasters coming into the game that were based on a day by day thing. So by day five, there was a disaster in town that you had to deal with. Which was uh, very reminiscent of the uh, design process and, uh, the way, uh, games reflect their development, uh, is we had a series of disasters making that game. Uh, the first one is that uh, is that we had a bona fide hit in our hands that uh, 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 Heroes Quest uh, sold uh, over 100,000 copies in, I can't remember if that was the first month or the first three months, uh, but that was like what a Sierra game sold in its lifetime. Yes, uh, and that was like saturating the, the market. Wow, yeah, the, extraordinary. I mean, every all the, all the PC gamers were buying it. Uh, and it caught Sierra totally uh, by surprise, and they were thrilled. Uh, they they weren't going to have us make another game immediately, but they immediately signed us a three-game contract uh, and said, okay, you're going to get started on Heroes Quest 2 immediately, except, except there was this other game out there. Uh, Games Workshop had a board game called Advanced Hero Quest, uh, and they had registered that trademark in the uh, English courts, uh, and... Uh, that uh, all of Sierra's European distribution went through the UK. Uh, uh, and uh, they said, you are not going to uh, distribute Heroes Quest anywhere in the UK uh, or sell it in England unless you change the name because we have advanced Hero Quest and we don't want people to think that your Heroes Quest is, uh, is an advanced Hero Quest game. Yeah. Uh, and now they did not have a computer game. They were planning and making one at some point. Uh, but because they had gotten to the trademark first, uh, Sierra backed down, and uh, we had a contest in-house of uh, what the new title would be and came up with Quest for Glory. And Heroes Quest became Quest for Glory, but part of the deal was Sierra was not allowed to tell anyone that it was the same game. Yeah, right. So, yeah. so game number two had a totally new game, totally new title. It's a series, that, and your character is supposed to progress through it, but now the players don't even know this is the same game. Yeah. But, and then, you know, there were all sorts of things that happened in the course of Yeah, this. the art process totally changed because uh, Sierra was just starting to transition to uh, VGA and 256 color games, which are much more beautiful. And much more difficult to do. Yeah. So, and uh, so they used us, even though we were still doing a 16 color, we were Sierra's last 16 color game. Uh, which, of course, meant that we uh, came into a, a, a completely destroyed market by the time we released. Uh, nobody was buying 16-color games anymore by then. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, we we became the guinea pig. We were the prototype uh, for how to make the uh, new uh, uh, scanned-in artwork games and so on that you know, real artists were painting the art on uh, uh, boards instead of uh, uh, drawing them on the computer. Uh, so we were... Uh, you know, 
really went through all sorts of transitions. We had just finally learned after a year of work of uh, how to make these games. They said, okay, change it all. Yes. Back to square <laughs> one. We are doing this all differently now. And all that's right. pretty much been our story. You know, five games that we did at Sierra, for Sierra, in the course of that, we had to reinvent it every time. And uh, five games in the series, plus a two children's game book uh, games that we did. Um, fortunately, fortunately, challenge and uh, excitement are fun, uh, but they're also very stressful. Yeah. So. But anyway, so all this made, some of this made it into the uh, storyline of Quest for Glory 2. You have uh, two uh, parallel cities, uh, which were Shapir and Rasir, and Rasir is an anagram of Sierra, uh, but Rasir is the, uh, is the city where everything has gone wrong, uh, and that you have a, a despotic... Uh, uh, you know, villain running the city, uh, and uh, it's your job as a hero to go there and set things right. Uh, but uh, we based, you know, at least a few of the, uh, you know, inside jokes there that seem like they're deadly serious, but are really references to stuff that was going on with Sierra development at the time and all the trouble we were having trying to get this game made. We didn't realize that the name Trial by Fire would be so appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was our subtitle, Quest yeah. for Glory, Trial by Fire. And look, you know, it, it's brought us to today um, and it's brought us to where we're at now and it's brought us to Hero You, Rogue to Redemption. And I can completely understand just, and, and this is just a, a tidbit of the story of your studio, Transsolar Games, as to why we're staring down the barrel of a game that's picked up um, 90% across the board and, and from the community as well, which is the, the most important um, feedback that you tend to get these days. It, it's extraordinary. And I, guys, we've, <laughs> I'm, I'm four minutes away from having to say goodbye, but I could, I could talk to you for another, and I, and I would, unfortunately, I've got to, I've got to start prepping for work, but I, I, I feel like this conversation isn't, it hasn't ended. Like, I feel like we're only halfway through the story of Transsolar Games because I, I want to come back to you guys at some point and talk to you more about Hero U Rogue to Redemption, the, the reviews online yeah, at GameOnOz.com. entirely another interview. Uh, you started out asking us about it, and we, uh, we sort of uh, derailed it going back into ancient history. Oh, but, uh, that's, you know what? And the, the, the whole point of me um, and Game on Australia talking to development studios, particularly indie developers, is because we very little do we get an opportunity as, as the gaming community to hear about the story of the studios that have been around for a long time and the challenges that they've overcome and the work that's gone into getting them to, to where they are today, you know, like it's, it is an extraordinary story and it's stuff that deserve to be heard. So I, I do not mind going back and forth through the history of Transola and through the history of you guys, because it is an extraordinary story to be told. And I appreciate the time to be able to tell it. Okay, so I really hope you can uh, schedule another interview and we can do this all all over again. We absolutely can. This Let's lock this one away as part one of Transsolar mm -hmm. Games and we will look to reschedule for a part two so we can get into Hero U Rogue to Redemption and, and talk about, because there's so many things I want to talk to you guys about with regards to today's day and age and how games are received and um, we have so many philosophical questions that we talk to each other about in the Game on Australia community because we are slightly older gamers. Um, you know, and, and it, it would be just extraordinary to pick your brain on those particular subjects and, and what it's like to develop a game in 2019 versus what it was like to develop a game through the 80s. Mm -hmm. And we'd be glad to talk about it.